It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. General Keith Kellogg uh, was the longest-serving national security advisor in the Trump White House. His new book, War by Other Means, is available uh, where books are sold, uh, Barnes & Noble, for example. And he joins me now. Uh, General, I want to go to something you wrote recently. And the very first paragraph, commenting on the recent events uh, by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is not easy for me. For much of his career, Mark Milley served with distinction and honor. I worked hand-in-hand with him during my four years in the White House, and I'd like to think we built a report based on mutual respect. It's hard to separate that man from the one who has emerged these last months alongside the alleged actions he has not denied. That is a strong opening salvo, General to a man who has been critical to many of the decisions being made in the last several months. Yeah, David, thanks for having me. Um, look, I, I, I had a lot of hard thoughts on that and when I wrote it, I, because I've known Mark. I've, I've known Mark Milley for over 20 years. And I think Mark forgot what his role in life was as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I, you know, I actually sent him a note on it that, you know, Article Article Two, Section Two of the Constitution is pretty clear. There's only one Commander in Chief, and the President of the United States. And the role of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs is a threefold role. Is one, he's the principal military advisor to the President, principal military advisor to the Secretary of Defense, principal military advisor to the National Security Council, and that's it. He's not supposed to be picking up the phone and calling anybody or talking to anybody. And then when he, they talked about this phone call to the, to the Chinese on the 8th of January, and he talks about the intelligence and reading call them, and, and I said, I told everybody, look, I never saw that intelligence. I got the presidential daily brief every single day. So I picked up the phone and called Robert O'Brien. He never saw it. Pompeo never saw it. John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence, never saw it. So he calls this the, the his counterpart up in China, and all that does, it shows weakness on the part of the United States. He went well beyond his role. And because of that, he he became very involved in politics, and he should go, and he should be either fired or, uh, um, or resign. And uh, you know, the comment he, I got back was, "Well, I called Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, and I said I reminded him that you're not the principal military advisor of the White House Chief of Staff, which is the president, and you didn't even tell the president you were going to do it." I said that's insubordination at the very at the very least, and and it sets a bad tone and it sets a very political tone for those in uniform. Joe Dunford would have never done that. Colin Powell would have never done that. Hugh Shelton would have never done that, and he did it. So I wrote that article, and I stand. Not only do I stand by it, I, I think it was a very very accurate on not only what I felt, but I think what most Americans should feel. And there's no been no accountability at all um, from not only what he said, but also with the debacle in Afghanistan, and he's part of that as well. General, the questions often asked to your comment and to what I read from your article in the New York Post, you know, the how and why, you know, what is it that changed it? Maybe we don't ever get that answer, but can you even fathom this change in General Milley and how he made that turn from being an advisor to someone who goes outside of his scope? Yeah, well, look, David, the biggest thing is the military at the very senior ranks has been politicized, and primarily because of the of the war in Afghanistan. It became very, very more involved in the political decision-making 
instead of stepping back and only giving their professional military advice the best advice. And they kind of started to blur the lines and merge the lines. <clears throat> and, I, and I think because of that, I think that that there needs to be a real you know, adjustment in thinking about the senior officers of the United States military. You know, I'm reminded of what George E. Marshall did in 1940 when he was the architect of victory for World War II from the military side of the house. And he actually purged the general officer corps. And he, and he actually took out a lot of officers because they weren't military, intellectually, or physically ready to lead the troops into the next fight. That's one of the reasons why Dwight D. Eisenhower was moved 350 people in one day. But at the same time, because he moved some officers out, but at the same time, George C. Marshall knew what his role in life was, and he made some comments, and the FDR made some pretty strong comments back. Because, for example, FDR wanted to do the invasion of North Africa to set ourselves up for Normandy, and Marshall recommended against it quite strongly. And it was the only order in World War II that uh, President Roosevelt signed, Roosevelt Commander-in-Chief, sort of said, look, I'm the guy in charge, not you. And I think we've forgotten that. Um, this is something that you wouldn't, wouldn't have seen, like I said, with Colin Powell or anybody else. And because of that political, politi- political engagement with the military, I think there needs to be a step back on it. And people have to understand that that's a very dangerous path this nation needs to, should, is going is going to go down to let our military so to become so heavily involved in the political envi- environment, the arena. Now, while there is, and we've certainly seen a change in doctrine from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, yeah. uh, these are not disconnected issues that we're discussing. It's an ongoing and often complex uh, world when it comes to military and foreign policy doctrine. So let's talk about that from the Trump era uh, the Trump presidency, where you were there, to where we are now, and the role of General Milley and others, the the politics of flag, you know, the flag officers uh, is varied. But what during the Trump era was his approach, and what effect did it have on the Trump administration, the decisions of the president, uh, and then into the Biden era? Yeah, he, he, the president had a very Socratic approach towards everything, President Trump. He would go around the room and ask everybody's opinion. I mean, everybody would have a chance to give what they believed to be true. And you better be right. And what I mean by right is you had to stand up to what you believe, for what you believed in and understood you had some both historical and intellectual background to be able to provide that advice. And that's what I mean by being right is you didn't just wing it. And, and he also he would look at the military, but the military was just part of that discussion. They didn't lead the discussion. They were part of it. Uh, and, and he always took them into account on any decision he was going to make. And, and you could actually change the president's mind. Uh, and I saw that happen on several occasions where if you laid out a strong enough argument, he wouldn't do something. Uh, and that included things from going after the Iranians after they shot down one of our drones when he was had his finger ready to go on who was going to take out the entire Iranian Navy. And we found out that the information we were getting was wrong, and he was able to step back from that, he, despite what he was being told. You know, we picked up some things that just said, no, don't go down this path, and he was able to stand back and, and take a different view. And, and I think that's important because the decision-making of a president is critical because he's the ultimate you know, decider. And... Um, and we would listen to everybody. But my concern today with President Biden is I'm not too sure he's actually listening to his senior officers or he, frankly, has the intellectual capacity to do so because I'm a big believer in patterns. And what I mean by patterns, everybody has a pattern in life. You do, I do, you know, how you go to the store, what you buy, the roads you're going to take. 
And this and Biden has picked up uh, set up set up a pattern of basically indecision. You know, this is the same guy who didn't want to go after Osama bin Laden when they sat in the Situation Room and made the decision. Obama said, should we do it? And, and Biden said no. And the Secretary Gates, former director of the CIA and Secretary of Defense, said Biden's been wrong on every, nearly every national security decision in the last 40 years. And, and even President Obama said never underestimate, underestimate the ability of Joe Biden to screw something up. And, and that that's the pattern that you see that Trump didn't have because Trump came at it much differently. He came at it from a business perspective. He he dealt with the business world. He was able to take the give and take coming back and forth. He would listen to people's views, but he also understood that the final decision was always his. And you don't see that today. And and the military, to a degree, understood that and accepted that, that their decision wasn't going to be the final decision, but they always had input out there uh, and for anything that was involving national security. And the president appreciated that. And, uh, and I saw him that. And I saw him appreciate that, but they never did an end run on him until right at the end. And the end run was Milley doing what he did with the Chinese, and when he was talking to uh, the Speaker of the House with Nancy Pelosi, that's something that I'd never seen done before either. In fact, I think there's a recent book that came out that the first chapter is all about that. He just really overstepped his bounds, and the nation can't afford that. I mean, that's why Article 2, Section 2 is so very important of our Constitution, and we should never tolerate it. And the trouble is we're starting to see a tolerance of that. By a, by a group of people that think, well, this is okay. No, it's not okay. Was it, or in this case of the transition from, <clears throat> excuse me, from Trump to Biden, was it a case of those like Mark Milley and others who were in the positions uh, felt they could advise a, a president uh, in Biden who, whether it was through weakness or inability to understand, there are various conversations around his foreign policy decisions. And you're right, if you look at his record on foreign policy, he went up against Reagan on taking on the Soviet Union. You know, so his pattern, as you put it, was well known. Did they feel more emboldened, in your opinion, and therefore uh, this is the path we're on, and it's a deadly path right now every day in the case of, of Afghanistan? Well, I think here's the. I think David, here's the big difference. The difference is they respected Trump in the sense that he they knew he was going to come down hard, uh, and this is what he wanted. Their job was to finally, once he made that decision, their job was to execute. I really believe they thought that they looked at President Biden of indecision and that they were able to kind of influence the the battlefield, the direction they were going to go. And that, and they they were badly mistaken on that because what I mean by badly mistaken is logic did not prevail anymore. And that happened with Afghanistan. You know, with Afghanistan, we put together a pretty good deal. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. It was a it was a tolerable deal with the Taliban. We put together the Doha Agreement, 29 February 2020, signed that deal. Three days later, the president picks up the phone and calls Barada, the chief negotiator for the Taliban, and tells him in no uncertain terms, this is what's going to happen if you don't follow through with this agreement. And he, and he said, I'm going to basically bomb me back to the dark ages or the stone ages. And I said, sir, you can't do that. He said, why not? I said, you got to bomb them up before you bomb them back down. It's a long way to go. But they got the point, Mr. President. And I'm not sure I was translated, but uh, I'm sure you, your words got across. In fact, I know it did because for an entire year, from 29 February 2020 till 20 January 2021, no American service member was killed in Afghanistan, not one. And we had a conditions-based agreement, and that agreement was certain things had to be met before we got out of there. We were going to leave 2,500 troops, 3,000 paramilitary, 
uh, under the CIA. We were going to leave uh, 5,000 NATO Allied troops there. Uh, the air base at Bagram was going to stay open until the agreement was was fulfilled. The agreement's public record. They can pull it up on the Department of State website and look at it. And Biden instead went for a date certain. He said, we're going to pull out by the 31st of August without any conditional agreement. Never picked up the phone and called Mueller Barada. Never talked to the Taliban. And the Taliban said, fine, we're just going to put game on. And and they did. And they just overran the country. And we knew that was going to happen if the agreement was not fulfilled. If they didn't work the the conditions to make it work, the first of which was we were going to have a comprehensive government of national reconciliation between the Tajiks, the Uzbek, the Pashtuns, everybody else involved in the process, backed by U.S. force. Uh, and Biden walked away from that. And, uh, you know, that's in the president was very firm with the, with the senior officers of the military. This is how it's going to be. This is how we're going to execute. And it, it was working for us. Was it a perfect agreement? No, David, it wasn't perfect. But it was good enough for us to start to focus strategically where we should have been focused, which was the Chinese and the Russians, instead of having the intellectual and strategic focus on the Middle East and counterterrorism and terrorism, which is important. But it was not the primary thing we should have been focused in on. We should have been focused in on uh, the emerging Chinese threat that we're seeing now. My guest, General Keith Kellogg, uh, former national security advisor to President Trump. Uh, Let's talk about the Chinese. And this has been a decades-long progression by the Chinese. The Indo-Pacific region, correctly identified during the Trump administration, was to look at the complexities of the various actors, whether it was India, Pakistan, Japan, Taiwan, uh, Vietnam, Korea, you know, North and South Korea, for that matter, all of these factors and China's growing influence, their use of the instruments of national power from their perspective, including information. And uh, as you write about in your book, you know, war by any other means, they use politics well. So from then to now, how do you assess the evolution and how we see and deal with China now? Well, I think we sometimes forget that China's been around considerably longer than we have. And when you go back to the Han Dynasty or any dynasty which was before, which were all BC before Christ, and they play the long game, and we don't really play the long game. They've got these the government, which is an authoritarian government, and they make those decisions much different than we make decisions. So we have to take that into account. But also realize that, that we need to make sure that our security is very specific and we need to make a very specific play to the, to the Chinese of what's important to us and what's not important to us. And if we, there's any ambiguity, they find that line and then they run between the lines. You know, we used to say in the military, if you want to conduct a great attack, if you knew it, always attack on the seam of a boundary between two units. Because most times people don't remember about the seams and they run right down it. Well, they, they're looking for the seams in U.S. diplomacy. And we have to be very clear to them there are no seams. We mean what we say and this is what we're going to do. And I think what you're seeing with the the current administration is they start they're starting to see these seams, and they're able to work them. And here's what I mean, you know, when when we were working with it was Taiwan, and we use that as the example. Is when uh, for four years we were there, we made it very clear to the Chinese, even though it was strategic ambiguity, our concerns about their threats against Taiwan. There were no overflights of Taiwan, or near, or really weren't overflights, but what they called into the aircraft. Defense Identification Zone, that the aid is, there were no flights like that. Well, the Chinese in the Biden administration in one day flew over 130 sorties into the aid is. 
And that's really sending a message, and it's, it's basically coercion of, of Taiwan. They, we wouldn't have allowed that. I know what President Trump would have done. He would have picked up the phone, called the commander of the Seventh Fleet in Japan, said sortie the Fifth Carrier Battle Group with the USS Ronald Reagan, and, and have it float down there to Taiwan and go have it go through the Taiwan Straits five, six, seven, one hundred and forty times, and make it very clear that if you're going to mess with us, you're going to you know you're making a huge mistake. And I don't think. I don't think anybody d- does that right now. I mean, you saw, you didn't see any pushback at all that I wasn't aware of by when they flew the uh, the sorties near Taiwan or the pressures on Taiwan. And I think it's a, a big mistake in work with China because they appreciate strength and they're looking for the seams to create friction amongst us and our allies. Uh, and I, I think we're making it, we as a nation make a big mistake because of the existential threat, the growth of China as an emergent power militarily, uh, economically, and, and politically. And they're not our friends. They're, you know, the very best are an adversary with a little with a little A. They're also militarily becoming very powerful. And when you look at what they've done with weapon systems, I mean, there's this hypersonic missile. A lot of people go, well, what's hypersonic? Well, this is a missile system that flies at Mach 5 or higher, which means it flies at two miles a second. We have no defense against You can put a nuclear warhead on it the conventional warhead on it. They've got them. The Russians have got them. We don't. And the reason we don't is when I went back earlier, we talked about, David, is we forgot to think strategically. We saw that when we came in. We put $3 billion against that kind of program. And yet we're not looking at having a a solid hypersonic missile, at least for another year. And we don't have any defense against it. Um, And it's something we have to create and, and develop as well. And we looked at that by developing the Space Force so we'd have our satellites in orbit with laser capability to pick up those kind of missiles. And so we were trying to think outside the box, um, but but the Chinese are very, very aggressive in what they're doing. And of course, is they perceive us as in either a weaker position or not in a uh, position to respond or having the will, and the will is a big part of this in politics, uh, they will act. They will be more aggressive. It is their history. And as you said, they've been around a little bit longer than us, to say the least. Uh, the book is War by Other Means, a general, Trump, a general in the Trump White House. By the way, I've got to ask you this question. As a von Clausewitz uh, student, uh, was that a bit of a tip to uh, the status, the strategist that he was when he said war is a mere continuation of policy by other means? You hit it, 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 David, exactly. I just flipped the words. And when they said that the war is the continuation of politics, I said, you know, politics is really a continuation of war. And when you look at the, the, when you look at the dynamic here in the United States of America and, and the, the friction that you see there, it really is anybody who's been in Washington, D.C. knows it is a war. It may not be with giant capital, with a capital W or nuclear weapons, but you fight constant battles in Washington, D.C. about the direction of the country what's important in the priorities. So you're, you're absolutely right. I just kind of turned Clausewitz on its head, and I said, that's kind of a little catchy way of doing it. Well, there's nothing wrong with being right about it, because it is. It's the history of the world, not just of the United States or of China, and uh, that has been well demonstrated over time. And to that end, it is important. And I think the focus today, and as I watch the 
president speaking in Glasgow and the what they put up as the important issues, while we don't focus on the core components, what the military and its various mission sets are between the service between the services, uh, the policy, the politics, the State Department, and a team of advisors, if we don't have an effective counter to China, or at least they don't even have the thought that we will counter, then they'll act further. And I think that's a more dangerous and destabilizing situation. Yeah, and I've I've told everybody, look, the, the role of the military is quite clear. It's pretty simple. Your job is to deter war, and if deterrence fails, you fight and win our nation's wars. I mean, you fight and win. Powell had that one right. And when he said, you know, you're, when you fight, you fight to win. You fight with overwhelming force. You bring the American people with you, and you have an end state. And that's one of the things I think the military forgot over the last 20 years. And this is probably, as I said earlier, one of the reasons why I thought it was important we disengage from Afghanistan so we could reset ourselves intellectually going forward. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, and if you forget that, you're going to end up losing a war. Well, we did lose a war. We lost a 20 year war, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, thousands killed, thousands wounded, uh, and, and you know, with, with no good end state, now we've got a terror mega state in the Middle East when you put together side-by-side contiguous borders, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan with nuclear weapons. So you've got a big problem on your hands right now, and I don't think we've even addressed that at all. And plus, there's been no accountability. I mean, this is the, the, the frustration I have is, so the military lost a 20-year war, and nobody's concerned about that? We're more concerned about what we're going to have for breakfast tomorrow, or who's playing football this Saturday or Sunday. I think it's a big mistake. You know, I wish we could continue this conversation, and we will have other conversations about this and other issues, but there's so much in this that is needed in the discussion you and I are having in the book War by Other Means and the understanding that is necessary in an environment today that is technologically, militarily, politically, and economically very different than even 20 years ago uh, when we first went into Afghanistan and the, and the global actors involved and the global opportunists, not just nation states that are involved. Uh, we're, we're in a period where foreign policy general and our doctrine uh, not only matters, but it can be deadly. Yeah, and I think it it it's something the American people have to be aware of. Look, I got I've I've got President Trump's mean tweets. I know he can punch down pretty hard, but I would tell people, tell me where our policies were wrong. And our policies for four years were pretty darn good. I don't care if it was trade with USMCA. I don't care if it was the Abraham Accords with the Middle East. I don't care if it was increasing defense. You know, I don't care if it was going after terrorism. We collapsed the ISIS caliphate. We killed Baghdadi. We killed Soleimani, probably the largest terrorist in the Middle East. We did a lot of really good things. And then when you fast forward to COVID, you know, remember, I remind people, we're the only nation in the world that created not one, not two, but three vaccines in historically record, record time on two different vectors. Uh, no other nation's done that. The only one closest to us is the United Kingdom, which has created one, AstraZeneca, and the Russians and the Chinese, nobody wants their vaccines, Sonovac or Sputnik. So we did a lot of good things. And, and you know, I know it can be hard, but I was all, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was I wanted to show that the caricature of what people saw with Donald J. Trump wasn't, wasn't necessarily true. I was inside the room. I saw it. People had their nose against the window pane. And I want to show you a different picture. And then you make your decision. Well, did we do what was right? He was a tough leader, but but he, he accomplished a lot. 
And I think we've got to be fair to ourselves and to the nation to make sure that it, it, what we did, and which I think was right, was we focused on the American people. And we looked at the first three words of the Constitution of the United States when it says, we the people. He was more concerned about the people in Washington, Kansas than necessarily people in Washington, D.C., and I think he had it right. War by other means, a general in the Trump White House, available for you uh, wherever books are sold. And that's by my guest, uh, General Keith Kellogg, former National Security Advisor to the President and to the Vice President for that matter, but both there. Uh, General, I have always enjoyed our conversations in the past. I hope we'll be able to have more in the future serious issues, but uh, sage advice is needed. You can join me live on The David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon East on Sirius XM Patriot 125.